this week on the Back Table Podcast. I'm just a strong believer in, in that you should join these organizations. And it's because, you know, you, your life is what it is. You live a certain amount of time. And what you tend to remember is, are the relationships you develop with others. And these organizations allow you to develop relationships. And yes, you can make contributions in terms of leadership and CME and advancing science, all the things that we mentioned. But one of the core things really is you, you meet people like yourself. And, and as a result, those relationships just become so impactful to your life and, and the, way you, the way you think about things, the fun times, the bad times, all, all of those things. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. Here we bring you conversations with the best and brightest minds in the field of otolaryngology with the hope that you can take this information and apply it to your practice. I am your host, Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist at UT Southwestern here in Dallas. And we have a very special podcast today on ENT societies. Why join? My co-host today is Dr. Romaine Johnson, Associate Professor and Director of our Pediatric Airway Program at UT Southwestern here in Dallas, Texas. You may remember him on Backtable, Episode 5, Pediatric Tracheostomy, the Long Game, Episode 14, Quality and Safety in Pediatric Airway, and Episode 21, Airway Surgery, What's in Your Toolbox. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Johnson. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. How are you doing today? Doing good. Happy Sunday. Happy or Sunday. whatever day you're listening to this. <laughs> well, we have an all-star panel today. Uh, we have the presidents of several ENT societies to talk to us about what the society does and why join. We have Dr. Ron Mitchell for ASPO, the American Society of Pediatric Otolaryngology, Dr. Galen Garrett from the Triological Society, and Dr. Seth Daly for the AVEA, the American Bronchoesophageal Society. Dr. Ron Mitchell is a professor and the Division Chief of Pediatric Otolaryngology and Vice Chair of the Department of Otolaryngology at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Galen Garrett is a professor of otolaryngology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She's the Guy M. Manish Chair of Laryngology and Voice, the Senior Executive Medical Director for the Vanderbilt Voice Center, and the Service Chief of Laryngology and the Professional Voice Center. And Dr. Seth Daly is a professor of otolaryngology at the University of Wisconsin. He's the Division Chief of Laryngology and Voice Surgery and the Fellowship Director for Laryngology. Welcome to all of you to the show. How is everybody doing today? Doing great. Very well. Great. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to come on. I'm going to go ahead and hand over the mic to you, Dr. Johnson, and let you lead the way. All right. Thanks, Gopi. Um, and just to clarify, Dr. Garrett is immediate past president. I believe Dr. Benninger is current president. But well, we obviously we have you on because um, when, we, when we put this together, we, you are the current president. I can't believe it's been that long. But anyway, uh, thank you so much for everyone joining us. One of the things that happens when you join these societies and when we get together and we meet is we talk about how can we improve our relationships with the larger community? How can we show people who aren't a part of the society that it is impactful to join, that it creates great value? And then, of course, Dr. Uh, Daly, Seth brought this up in one of our meetings, and I just thought, you know, we should we should talk about it more often. And, and I thank Gopi and the Backtable podcast for putting this together because that really inspired us to have this. So first, I would just like everyone to just go briefly in terms of talk about yourself a little bit, and then also tell us about your particular society. We'll start with Dr. Daly. We'll go in alphabetical order. Seth, take it away. You bet. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. So yeah, I'm uh, originally from New York City. I grew up there. 
almost didn't leave the island other than with family trips till I was 31. And then the umbilical cord got cut, as it does for many New Yorkers, and moved to Boston for about three years for fellowship and beginning practice. And then I was lured away by a beautiful job out here at Madison and have been here for starting tomorrow, 17 years on the dot, and uh, have had a, a wonderful career being able to interact uh, with adult and pediatric otolaryngologists in the upper airway. So my original love, of course, was voice. I sang in the opera when I was a kid, and we have a very musical, linguistically oriented family. And uh, I discovered that there's so much more, you know, behind the behind the line, the witch and the ward, especially the wardrobe part. And so there's swallowing and there's airway and there's pediatric people who are, you know, even more high strung than the adult people. And uh, so we, we love uh, interacting with everyone. The ABEA was a perfect home for me um, as a youngster. And uh, there were many people whom I admired and continue to admire uh, older than me who said, you know, hey, you should, you should come and hang out with these people. This will be good stuff. Dr. Garrett Galen, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and trial, perhaps? Yeah, sure. You know, I have been a lifelong Tar Heel, having grown up in Charlotte and then uh, went to college, med school, and did residency in Chapel Hill. So I am truly a Tar Heel. In fact, I was a classmate of Michael Jordan. Um, a small claim to fame. Missed just being in Sports Illustrated by one desk on a, in a photo, photo shoot. But, you know, when I was deciding uh, what to do as far as my long-term career plans, I knew I wanted to stay in academics. And laryngology was such an early field at that time. So, Ultimately, I ended up doing laryngology, but what really brought me to academic ENT uh, was the broad, the broad aspect of our specialty. You know, all ages, all genders, you know, just uh, lots of different areas that we could influence um, by doing our specialty. And so even though I wear the laryngology hat predominantly right now, I remain very focused on, on general otolaryngology, and that's what brought me to the Triological Society. You know, I, th I hope we talk a little bit about mentorship because I think that's a big influence for our societies. But my mentor in Dr. Rick Pillsbury, um, literally as a first-year medical student, it's like, how could I not become a member of the TRIO? You know, he lives in and breathes the TRIO Society. So for me, the TRIO is my, it literally is my anchor. And, you know, I'm also a member of the ALA, the ABEA, uh, et cetera. But the TRIO to me uh, needs to maintain its status as kind of the, the glue that holds the subspecialty societies. Dr. Mitchell, Ron. Okay, thank you. So my background is a bit different. I trained in London. I came to do a fellowship in the US. And as they say, the rest is history. Uh, I'm also unique here because uh, I, I am in the same division as our hosts, which is quite an honor to have both of them in my division. So I've, I've been in Dallas at UT Southwestern for the last 10 years. I first went to an ASPO meeting about 20 years ago. 
And I've been involved with ASPO throughout my training, and I have the honor to be the ASPO, pre the current ASPO president. ASPO has always felt like a home to many pediatric otolaryngologists, but we can later talk about some of the challenges. I, I have always seen it as a place where uh, we share interactions with everyone. We are focused on education and research, and we basically meet our colleagues and have a good time together. And I look forward to talking about that in more details and to talk about some of the challenges w w with our hosts and our colleagues here. Very good. You know, um, again, for those who don't know me, I'm Romaine Johnson. And as Gopi said, I'm associate professor at uh, UT Southwestern. And I also, I belong to all three of these organizations. I belong to ABA, I belong to TRIO, I belong to ASPO. I also feel very strongly about belonging to Academy. And Dr. Garrett, you mentioned it, mentoring. When I started my residency, brought, uh, you know, Dr. Alford, Mickey Stewart, Ellen Friedman, they were all, you know, you basically, they all belong to these societies. And it was just emphasized that these are places you find homes. These are places that give you experiences and opportunities. And so that was the reason why I joined. And I'm always surprised to hear people say, well, you know, why should I join? I remember, and I just want to get your thoughts on this. When I would, there was a visiting professor who came and he had just joined the Trilogical Society and he kind of said offhandedly, does anybody still do that? Is that still a thing? And I, you know, I was the one person who stood up like, wait a minute, of course that's still a thing. And it, cause it's a place where you have the opportunity to interact with people who are interested in mentoring and research. And so I just, I don't know, how do you talk about what is the value that you find in these organizations? What, if you had to talk to someone who made that comment and it was about any organization, what were some of the things you would say to them? Well, I'll, I'll start. You know, I, I, I actually am remiss in that I didn't mention my, my big tie to Vanderbilt now. Of course, I've, I've been at Vanderbilt for 27 years now because that's where I did my fellowship. But, you know, another mentor for me was Bob Ossoff, obviously, who was the chair and he was heavily involved in TRIO and ALA. You know, so when I came to Vanderbilt, it was, you know, I already had the TRIO influence from Dr. Pillsbury. But, you know, Bob was such a, you know, he was a force um, for the ALA and the ABEA. And for me, it was, it, was, it was like, if you're an academic otolaryngology, you need to be part of these societies because, you know, it's, it's a two-way street, first of all. We are the societies. The societies aren't just a group. Of, it's not an organization that exists in absentia from people. And so it, it almost is a, it creates a format or a, a unifying spot to bring all of us together. You know, to me, societies shrink the world and we are all able to communicate. We do the education aspect, we do the research aspect, but the collegiality part is what makes the society who we are. And, and it's, we have to remember it is a two-way street. So we can't just take from the society and expect the society to live. We have to give back. And I think that's a key part that I try to instill, you know, in our residents uh, and, and even the medical students, because I think that's where it starts. 
Dr. Mitchell, you maybe wanted to talk about controversies before we, or barriers or challenges. Before we get to challenges, can I, can I go glass half full about ABA and societies for a moment? Sure. Cool. So for me, there are some very primal things I would say that exist within societies, primarily that of sort of finding your tribe. Okay. So we all remember perhaps looking at different colleges or different medical schools or residencies and having visits and speaking with people and at some point or another developing some preferences based upon our impressions, maybe some conceptual things like, golly gee, I really want to do this super subspecialty or I want to live in this place or this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, there's also kind of a fit phenomenon, you know, like you go to the shoe store, you put on the shoe and you're like, oh, wow, that that's good. That's, that's the one. And so I think we all have features of that where when we go to meetings and we see presentations and we interact with other individuals, both older and younger, we think, yeah, this is a, this is a pretty good place to be. I, I feel pretty comfortable here. And so with the diversity that we have within otolaryngology, there's kind of always some place to find a little mini home. You know, we have, thank goodness, you know, the academy to, to bind us and the history with the trilogical to you know, bind Cosm and all that. And within that, there are, you know, there are other offshoots, there are other places um, to go. And I think the beautiful diversity of otolaryngology is exactly that. So some way, somehow you can find, find a home and find people you want to be like, and people you want to emulate as you get older, and then give back. One side note about the ABEA is that it's always been oriented around public safety. It has a public safety feature. Um, in terms of, you know, prevention of caustic congestion in children, prevention of foreign body ingestion in children, as well as tracheotomy, adult and pediatric, trying to manage complications, prevent problems and educate folks. But the public health factor for me really was a draw and it always keeps the mission clean. You know, it means that we're not, the society exists in service to the public, that we don't we are here for other people and that the mechanisms which we employ uh, through committee work or this or that or the other ultimately should all be focused on that, should be focused on education, on public outreach, on bringing up the next generation, supporting some new science, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think making sure to have a pretty clean, happy vision and mission is really something that all the societies do, you know, a good job at. But the ABA for me has always had that front and center. And we've tried to highlight that, as you know, Romain, from getting relentless emails from me, et cetera, is that, you know, that's something we really want to focus on. But boy, oh boy, you know, having a service-based mission and having the public health within our sites, that's a great way to be. You know, it's hard to have a bad day when that's what everybody's going after. Ron, you wanted to give us your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, I, I certainly echo what Dr. Ker uh, Garrett and Dr. Daly say, but to directly answer your question, when people say to me, why would I join ASPO? I like to make it very personal. How did I benefit from joining ASPO? So ASPO has been the place where I met a large number of colleagues from all over the country in one place. Uh, ASPO is, uh, is where I have sat in lectures 
uh, watched videos, watched how other people do the same surgeries that, that I do and thought to myself, this is, this may be a better way of doing it. Talk to my colleagues, being able to go to someone who's just presented something and just ask a few questions and discuss it in a fairly informal, uh, setting. ASPO is also where I talk to people about research ideas, especially early on in my career, where you could go to someone and say, I have this idea, you're a very successful researcher. How did you get from point A to point B? So it is, as we say, it is a society. You get out what you put into it. The society has to be very uh, aware of some of the challenges that uh, hopefully we will talk about, but it is basically a family and, and you have to find, as Dr. Daly said, what size and what uh, family works for you. Uh, and I would like to promote ASPO as the place for pediatric otolaryngologists. Well, let, let's get into some of the challenges. So we had a recent meeting at Academy. It was a great meeting. And I was, I was sitting and having dinner with two younger physicians. And some of the comments they made were, you know, because obviously I talk about joining societies all the time because I think it's important. But some of the challenges that they mentioned were they felt like there's a gap between being in the audience and being on stage and that the people who are on stage, the people who are in the leadership positions, they tend to be inaccessible or sort of the same old, same old, and their ideas aren't being heard. Now, of course, I made counter arguments, but I'm curious, is, what do you think some of the challenges are? Are they correct or do you think there's other challenges? Because these issues come up repeatedly. So I remember sitting in the audience and looking at the podium and feeling exactly as they feel, okay? So rather than challenge what they say, I think uh, we need to be uh, very aware that that is an issue. In addition to that, and I'm talking specifically about ASPO, but it does uh, apply to TRIO and to ABA, these societies have got bigger. And that in itself is a challenge. So I remember 20 years ago when I was sitting in the audience looking at the podium, there were maybe 200 people there, maybe less. Now suddenly we have 600. Uh, and for the person who walks into uh, such a meeting, it may be intimidating. We also would like on one hand to offer opportunities to you know, to young, uh, pediatric otolaryngologists. On the other hand, we actually want to expand. We are inviting international memberships. So there is a challenge here. On one hand, we want to make it more intimate. We are looking at ways of involving, for example, in ASPO, as you, both of you know, we do have a young members, uh, committee, uh, and they sit on the board. They bring ideas to us. But as the society grows, maybe we need to look at ways of making aspects of it more intimate and involve more of our younger members. Dr. Garrett brought up that beautiful word of mentorship. And uh, as far as presenting at meetings or being part of meetings, certainly the public speaking aspect, you know, public speaking is the number one U.S. fear, isn't it? Right? Oh, isn't it always top of the list? It's public speaking. So there's that. And then also... Um, I'll speak for myself here, but if there's, if there's ever an opportunity for me to feel, you know, nervous in front of peers, 
it's giving a scientific talk at a national meeting among my peers. The last group of people that I want to feel unprepared for, both from a service perspective and then wanting to get the details right, et cetera, where, you know, golly gee, did I miss a reference or there's someone's work in the audience that I wasn't even aware of because I didn't do my homework properly or that sort of thing. It's terrible. So for a young person in particular, it's also, there's a bit of a rite of passage um, as far as that goes. And again, getting back to Dr. Garrett's point, the, the solution to that is mentorship. The solution to that is having a senior sponsor, someone who can make sure that you're doing it right, that you're covering your bases, that you're neither under nor overstepping, um, and that you have, you know, some sort of lively, but uh, straightforward presentation that you can engage the audience with. And so again, having that senior person, having that, you know, middle, middle of the career person, someone who can help guide you through that, I think really does help engage, um, the younger folks. And then, you know, having Again, not to be a total, I can, I, we're only halfway into this. I'm already a broken record. This is terrible. But having, you know, having uh, uh, the mission in mind, okay? Because that tends to make all the other nervousness or other garbage or like who's in the audience. It matters less if you're, if you're focused on the, on the big stuff. But uh, reminding people, therefore, especially the younger folks, of the history, the tradition. What is it that we're here for? How are we saving adults and kids? So that tends to make it, some of the little stuff go away, I would say. I can pipe in a little bit about the challenges. I mean, I think we all know what they are. In addition to what you, you guys already mentioned, you know, there's the financial aspect. It's, you know, you consider that a barrier. Uh, I mean, if you start adding up all the dues that we pay for the academy, for, you know, board certification and continuing certification, you know, and all the other societies we belong to, and then you throw on top of that the actual meeting expense. I mean, it it, it certainly adds up. Uh, so so I think we do need to focus on the on the fact that the benefits outweigh that at part of it. You know, I, I want to talk a little bit about community practitioners because you know we're all academic academicians. I think the society membership in the meetings makes sense. But the one aspect of the triologic that, that I've always been proud of, and this is even when I was in residency, was it really, it really, it, it drew a lot of community practitioners. And the sectional makeup was really key to that. And, and I think that if you ask people who've been in the trio for as long as I have, I think that is one thing that we have not been able to fix. And that is the break. Well, it's not break up. It's actually the combining of the sections into the one meeting in January. Although that's an awesome meeting, by the way, even still, that is an awesome meeting. But when the sections met by themselves and they were smaller and more intimate, I'd say probably at that point, maybe half the members were community otolaryngologists. And if you look back at who all were presidents of the triological, there were a good number of community otolaryngologists who held that role um, and still do if you look at the last five or 10 years. But it is becoming harder for that group. And that is one area of focus for the trio is how do we, how do we maintain the importance of being involved 
when you're not in the academic, the research, education part of it, which, I mean, I think we all uh, agree that that makes very much sense for membership. But I would say that for community doctors out there, the trio is that tie-in to keeping keeping uh, up to date on all the subspecialties, even some of the non-clinical things like professionalism. You know, we need to make sure we're focusing on that. So, Ron, I know getting community physicians involved in ASPOs has recently come up in, in our meetings. What are, your, what are some of your thoughts uh, to piggyback on what uh, Galen talked about? Yeah, I certainly think it's an important part of what, uh, what we are doing and what we plan to do in the next five or 10 years. So we went about it by having a committee led by a community physician who has been involved in ASPO for many years. We have asked him to put together a committee by his choice uh, and to report to the board. So that, that, that has been our approach to it. We see it as a very important part of ASPO as we move forward to basically have an academic society, have a meeting where there is a variety of presentations, both from medical students, residents, fellows, and academic and non-academic physicians. We will probably know more in the next two or three years in terms of how successful we've been. But our plan is to identify pediatric otolaryngologists in the community uh, and have a come back to ASPO uh, plan to get them into our society. It is a challenge because as uh, Galen has mentioned, many of them see it as a financial issue. It costs money to be a member of the society, it costs money to come to the meeting, there are expenses and so on. Uh, and we are looking at ways of trying to bridge those gaps. It's not easy. So Seth, the ABEA is, it's in some ways it's similar to, it, it has a lot, a lot of overlap. So you have adult laryngologists, you have adult bronchoesophagologists, you have head neck surgeons who do airway reconstruction. And then, of course, you have pediatrics. What are some of the challenges for you or that organization trying to deal with such a diverse membership? It's very similar to, to the trial in that sense. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And is, you know, I, um, I'm reminded of the expression 100 years ago where general surgery was called surgery of the skin and its contents. So we have moved a long way where otolaryngology was, you know, eyes, ears, nose, and throat. And then the eyes became ophthalmology. And then ENT became otolaryngology had neck surgery. You know, we're constantly in evolution. And I think if we approach it that way and are sensitive to that, then the answers will begin to become more and more obvious over time. The advantage of the ABEA has historically been its inclusivity. You know, there's Within the last 10, whatever plus years, we hear about unified airway. You know, people raise their hands and go, oh my gosh, you know, unified airway. Well, of course it's a unified airway, you know, because that's how, that's how it developed. And so, of course, everything's connected. It's just now we have science really to make that a little bit more obvious. However, the disadvantages we face are that of maybe too many disease processes, too many interests. 
whether it's, you know, cancer versus, you know, whatever, pediatric congenital anomalies, like those things can be pretty different. On the other hand, we are at risk in some sense of becoming hyper-specialized. And so maintaining some sort of home for curious individuals who do similar but not identical things, I think will continue to have value. The degree to which that will be true based upon constraints of time and money will show itself. And so, you know, the ABE, American Bronco Esophagological Association, I mean, really, you know, you can't have the, you can't have it take longer to say the word name of the organization that it does to give the presentation. So, you know, where there are always ways to evolve, but that said, we'll, we'll see how it goes. And we, we've tried always to keep costs low. Um, for those who know the ABEA, it's not a very, uh, profligate enterprise. We don't, uh, we don't all have gold teeth and drive Lamborghinis and that sort of thing. Um, but we have, you know, a modest, you know, a modest budget and we try to do as much with it as we can. And so I think the membership people, they appreciate that, that we're, that we're not charging them an arm and a leg to be able to deliver some content. And, you know, if you want to talk to someone from sleep, you know, they, maybe they are an ABA member. So we have people from pulmonary GI all over the place. And we view that currently, you know, as a, as a bonus, as a good, but we'll see. You know, surgery, the skin and its contents, you know, we sure have come a long way. So here we go. Keep evolving. I suspect the, the society memberships are going up. I know uh, ASPO certainly is. Is uh, ABA and trial also increasing? I'm assuming so. ABA, just very briefly, is, uh, yes, continues to increase modestly over, over time. But it's, you know, it's not explosive. It's not a, it's not a rock concert. It's, it's a membership to an academic small society. And the trio, you know, certainly membership is going up. And, you know, we are the, the one society that requires a thesis to become a member. And as you can imagine, through the years, there's been discussion about that. You know, does that keep people from wanting to become a member, especially community uh, otolaryngologists? But every year, uh, those of us who are in the trio, you know, one of the highlights of the annual meeting is the long welcome line. We're probably not going to be doing handshakes uh, in the next year or so, but but maybe some elbow bumps as as we go back to in person. But we are definitely continuing to grow. Let's talk a little bit about Trio. I know if I'm correct, everyone here is a member or aspiring member of Trio. Correct. What were some of the reasons why you joined, Seth and, and Ron? I joined because, again, as I mentioned earlier, it was a place where. You had just a group of people who, who were strongly interested in mentoring and advancing science. And those two things resonated with me as a young physician. And so even early on in my residency, it's like, okay, I'm definitely going to join trial one day. I just have to wait till it's my turn in the, in the, in the process. I'm curious, what was your rationale for joining um, and, and what has your experience has been? I, again, as, as Dr. Galen mentioned, it's one of the few organizations that really is anyone can join. It involves all subspecialties and it tries to provide a platform for, for everyone. So, you know, going back to what Galen mentioned, for me, the attraction was the thesis. So probably if there was no requirement for the thesis, I probably would not be a trial member, but I saw it as an academic society. The thesis was something that 
I actually saw as a challenge, but an opportunity. It allowed me to identify an area that I had an interest uh, and I could study in more detail. Uh, I enjoyed the, the fact that there were many people at Trio who were like-minded. So again, um, you know, what Galen mentioned is one of the challenges that we also share in ASPO. So one of the main reasons that community physicians mention for not joining ASPO is that we do have an academic requirement and some of them cannot meet the academic requirements. So the question is, do we actually soften the academic requirement, which there's a lot of opposition within the society for doing, because it is, we do not feel the bar is very high, but it is mentioned as one of the challenges, both among the international members and the community uh, pediatric otolaryngologist. On the other hand, uh, doing away with it completely may lose us some members who see the academic side of it as one of the positives. So I am an example of someone who was attracted to the trio because of the thesis. I couldn't have said it any better. I mean, the, a big, shiny, green, manufactured publication with something that actually matters. <laughs> like, come on, it's pretty good. Yeah, I I certainly remember the first the first trio thesis that I had actually paid attention to or had a, a physical copy of rather than having, you know, photocopied out of uh, the library someplace when I was a resident was uh, Dr. Zaitel's thesis on phonomicrosurgery for premalignant epithelium of the vocal fold, and it was well illustrated and there was history and could you know you could feel yourself become part of this discussion on this topic and you know who who wrote what and you know it's just this fabulous nerd pour over opportunity that we all get to read someone's thesis when they've thought a lot about this and spent you know months and months and years sometimes you know developing a technique or an idea or whatever so someone's you know has done it much better than you have on, on this topic and they really have dived deep and it's beautiful to get a straight answer on something. And so that was definitely a big inspiration for me. And of course, we paid the extra money for a big shiny green, you know, copy of that. You know, you, you got to give one to your mom, right? <laughs> so. Can I, Dr. Johnson, do you mind if I ask the group a question as the uh, the one that's a couple of years younger, I guess, and who's, I just was at least able to have the opportunity to apply to actually start my thesis. You know, so I have not crossed that threshold. Um, for me, what drew me to it, number one, is Dr. Johnson kept telling me every year for the last five to seven years that this is something I need to do. And then number two, so that's good mentorship right there, coaching. And then number two, <laughs> I felt like finally at this point in my career, this is my practice. What can I take from my practice and what can I then contribute from my practice? And to me, it's a big challenge. I'm, you know, writing something is even though I'm in academics and I'm our program director, it's, it's a big challenge. And Dr. Mitchell and Dr. Johnson can tell you that. So for me, it definitely it's it's going to be a challenge. But I guess my question is, is it still we don't quite get to the question at the beginning is that there is some sort of gap. And, you know, it may be that in the past, these the academic societies, you know, you have this opportunity to, you know, have a triothesis or have, you know, be a part of 
of a society where you have other academicians, but we do want to include community physicians. And yet, in order to get in, you have to have a support system, right? So if you do have a practitioner, whether they're international or in private practice for the last five to seven years, they may not have research support or the ability to have something that sets them up for success. And then the access to the society is becoming even less and less tangible. Do we feel that with time, you know, sometimes it's not necessarily to soften, but perhaps adjust so that there's different ways? And we talked about this uh, in one of our ASFO meetings where, you know, sometimes we have to think of other ways that uh, people contribute. And it, it may not necessarily be through a publishable paper. Do, does those conversations come up for you guys in the societies? And how do you? move forward? Because then we talk about diversity and inclusion and, you know, how do we recruit, right? How do we get more people to join? How do we bridge? I mean, that's the gap we're trying to bridge. So how, how do we do that? So, you know, for the trio, we do expect a kind of publishable paper, but it doesn't have to be an independent investigation or scientific investigation. I think we, we make the mistake of assuming that a community practitioner doesn't have something to contribute. And they absolutely do. You know, they have a, a career experience. It, it may be things about professionalism that they work on or things in their community. You know, Seth, you spoke to kind of that patient safety mission. I guarantee you the, these community otolaryngologists are, are involved in some form or fashion and that can be a publishable article. And also remember, it doesn't have to be laryngoscope. It can be ENT today. It can be, you know, in other formats. So that's, that's our job to get that message across. And that goes back to the mentorship aspect. Yes. Yeah, so, so Gopi, I, I, I think there are two aspects to it, and one of them um, I think Galen covered very well, and that is there is an aspect of fear of the unknown. And what I mean by that is they overestimate how academic we want them to be. And many of these community physicians are involved in quality projects. They're involved in, in other aspects that very much meet the bar. Yeah. There is another aspect to it, which is a different question. I think every society needs to discuss it and needs to look at the pros and cons and their mission and so on. And to say, should we be lowering the bar? That's a whole different uh, question. Or should we widen the bar? And what I mean by that is, does it have to be published? Does um writing a book chapter, is that okay? Or an article in ENT News, is that okay in lieu of a peer-reviewed publication? I think we collectively will be looking at that, but I know that at least within ASPO, and I expect in the other societies, you will see a very similar picture. The opposition to lowering the bar is not insignificant. We may lose as many as we gain in terms of members. You know, one of the things that I think about Gopi is, and Galen hinted at it earlier, was, you know, what John F. Kennedy said, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what, your what you can do for your country. To a certain degree, 
these societies, it is what you put in and you can, you join these societies and then you can make contributions, whatever contributions you want to make. If you want to advance scientific knowledge, that's a contribution. If you want to engage in mentoring, that's a contribution. If you want to just get CME and education for your own self, that's another contribution. If you want to get more involved, you want to join a committee, you want to run for office. Those are all contributions you can make. And I, I'm not completely hardcore because I certainly understand the barriers that people have, but I am one of the people that says, no, don't lower the bar too much. You do want to have some effort. Like it shouldn't just be you pay your dues. If the only thing you want to do is just pay your dues, then there are other societies that you can join where you just pay your dues and you don't have to do anything else. They'll get, they'll give you CME. You can go to the meeting, but even those societies, and I think American Cambiolaryngology is, is among them. If you really want, you can do more than that. You, you can show up, you can join, you know, you still got to somehow show up and participate. And so that's what these societies offer. They offer you the opportunity to go to great parties. You know, I always look at meetings as they're like parties and I, you know, I like going to parties and like good parties to go to. And it's just an opportunity to, to, to interact with people that are like-minded, to have similar interests. And because these are big organizations, it's much easier to find people that you can connect with because, you know, you, you need to belong to a community. Seth mentioned your tribe. We're many tribes. And finding the tribe that kind of connects with you will help you in the long run. Enough ranting on that. Anyway, (laughs) if I could um, follow up to your rant or rather a sort of a reframe, I think it's important to remember what the different functions are because we sometimes set up straw man arguments of, you know, one thing versus another when in fact that may not be the case. You know, societies exist for a lot of reasons. You know, otherwise mission statements would be really, really short. The advancement of science, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, the public health, the education of the next generation, mentoring something, but, you know, whatever, right? There's always a list. And I think one, you know, what our discussion here is orienting around in part is some of the different functions, right? Because there's the sort of academic machine that kind of feeds itself or wants to feed itself of whether it's publications or presentations or being on committees or something or some leadership role or whatever it's going to be for academic advancement, right? So there's sort of the internal, you know, machinery that works. But beyond that, there are actual things that happen where we educate each other, where we educate the youngsters, where we educate the public, where we, you know, our patients, or we're frankly, where our patients and the public educate us. We're like, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing it that way? That's stupid, right? So that's an actual thing. And then there's, you know, actual advancement of science. I mean, there are societies, especially the trial, frankly, that does a great job at providing monies for young investigators to get their careers going to actually contribute in a way that matters. And so I think we always want to be thoughtful about what is the end goal or what is our conversation orienting around at any one particular time? Is it meeting together and having collegiality? Love a good party too, right? Or is it, um, you know, something grander? Or is it something that's just housekeeping, right? I mean, we all have to do CMEs and some of that stuff. And hopefully by educating each other and having those opportunities, you're taking care of the CMEs. And it's not, you know, CME checkbox for too, too many people. But anyway, being able to recognize where in the conversation 
uh, you know, what in the conversation we're orienting around, I think helps to sort of answer some of these questions because, you know, you can't have a functioning society do anything good for the public or anything else if it can't survive, right? And you got to have dues and support and finance, right? Money makes the world go round. We all know that's true. So trying to figure out some sort of balance or understanding in there where we can keep going and, you know, fulfill the mission without, you know, breaking the bank. And, and uh, Romain and Gopi, just to add one aspect of it that I think in ASPO we are addressing probably quite aggressively, and that is to catch the people when they are doing their fellowship. If we make them a fellow member and very quickly set the bar, they know what they need to do, it's not that high, and we work at bringing them to their own society which is how we view ASPO. So uh, get the message out fairly early on in their training. So we talked a lot about how the money makes the world go round and how we have dues and, you know, we still have to register for meetings. Where does the money go? I mean, I know this is probably an entire different podcast, but how do you think about how the finances are? Just maybe in a sentence, I, you know, that's probably a whole different thing. But just when people ask you, how do you answer that question? I can answer it for TRIO, and, and I can also answer a little bit for ALA, because those are the finances of those two societies are very different. The ALA, I think, is more like the ABEA, where the dues is the lifeblood. I mean, the society doesn't exist without the dues. You know, there's infrastructure. If you've ever run any type of meeting, th there, there's cost. And there are budgets available. I think these are all, you know, not-for-profit organizations. So you should be able to see where that money goes. But Gopi, I would say even for this podcast, you know, there, there's, there's some cost incurred, even though none of us are really traveling. But there is definitely cost. For the trio, you know, we're very fortunate that, um, you know, we, we have a laryngoscope as, I mean, it is part of the trio. And that allows us to provide uh, different funding, as I think Seth mentioned a little while ago. We fund probably between, maybe depending on the year, between a quarter million and a half a million dollars of research funding to various and mostly younger uh, investigators. We also provide travel grants for every single resident that presents at either the combined section meeting or the or COSM. Um, so that's where, you know, in addition to all that same infrastructure, you know, that's where we're fortunate to be able to uh, support young investigators. So, uh, yeah, I, I really don't have too much to add, given that Galen has given that, that framework. The ABA does indeed have a an unenviable task of not being able to be research funding Santa Claus in the way, <laughs> the, way the trial does. We're all, every society is jealous of the trial for those financial, you know, opportunities that they're able to afford young people. And that's, and I mean, I really applaud that. I really, really do. And that's something I think we should all, you know, aspire to. But in the meantime, you know, the, there are still missions to fulfill as far as education and outreach and uh, mutual support, you know, information updates and all the rest. So we have, yeah, ours is a little bit more hand to mouth um, as it is for a lot of small societies, you know, here and every other medical specialty ever. So 
So for uh, for Aspos, uh, I, I I was the treasurer before becoming president. So the finances are very familiar to me. Uh, the sources of uh, money coming in is basically membership dues and the meetings. And we ran until um, uh, until COVID hit us. We ran two meetings a year that were both financially positive for us. That has changed in the last two years. Uh, we have an endowment uh, that we don't currently tap into. Uh, and we actually only just started tapping into it in the last uh, six to 12 months. Uh, in terms of expenses, Trio is number one and we are number two in terms of uh, uh, spending on research. So we increase the amount we spend on research every two or three years. We, we cannot match the lofty heights of Trio. We spend about a hundred thousand a year on research support for investigators. The other expense is actually the running of the society. We team up with uh, the American College of Surgeons who run the day-to-day -day operation. They run our website uh, and so on. So, you know, it's a fairly simple what comes in, what comes out. Choose are important, the meetings. We have to get back to having in-person meetings for us to survive. We couldn't survive with the present. We, we are now drawing on savings. We very much would like to go back to the good old days where the meetings were actually in the black, not in the red. Okay, well, we have a few minutes left. Uh, we'll start with Galen. Would you like to say any last words about, the, about our conversation? I'll say some last words too, but. That's, that sounds kind of <laughs> ominous there, Rumi, and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have, I have only positive things. I, I, I Terminal just, thoughts <laughs> today. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Tell me something good. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we'll just focus on, uh, on, on the trio society. So, I mean, again, I think uh, we, we've all mentioned over the last hour, uh, you know, one, how important society membership is. And I think, you know, for the trio, as I mentioned, we're, we're the glue. And, and if anyone happened to see my presidential address virtually, I kind of went over how I thought the trio is kind of the, the mothership for the subspecialty societies by using my my tree analogy. But but to me, you know, the fact that the trio is able to do what what they're able to do or we're able to do, I think it it allows this these smaller societies to continue. Cause because we are trio, you know, we wear multiple hats. So Dr. Daly. The only final thought is uh, keep your eyes on the prize. Go big, go for the mission. Get involved, be around people who are passionate, admit ignorance, uh, learn from others, ask stupid questions, try and get funding to ask really good questions, throw yourself at the mercy of someone much, much smarter than you. And it's great. I mean, it's great to be the dumb person in the room. It's just a fabulous feeling. It's pretty easy to do with heady minds within otolaryngology. So just an encouragement to people to, you know, whatever, whatever shoe fits, you know, just go for it. It's a, it's a beautiful community. So ASPO is the home for pediatric otolaryngologists. 
I remember being a young pediatric otolaryngologist and going to the meeting and being intimidated by people giving great talks and uh, having a presence in leadership. And I find myself now in that position. So I'm a testament to the fact that you can come to the first meeting, keep on coming. Don't, don't make the first meeting your last meeting. This is the home for pediatric otolaryngologists. And we do listen to some of the challenges that has be, have been expressed uh, on this podcast. We are trying and working at meeting those challenges. Uh, and I think we will over time. I'm also honored to be called back to, uh, to a second podcast on Backtable ENT. So the first one couldn't have been that bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, for Gopi, I, I have had several emails months after the first one saying, I heard you on Backtable ENT. So it's obviously growing and congratulations. <laughs> thank you. I just want to say thank you to Dr. Shaw and Backtable ENT for hosting this podcast. I'm just a strong believer in, in that you should join these organizations. And it's because, you know, you, your life is what it is. You live a certain amount of time. And what you tend to remember is, are the relationships you develop with others. And these organizations allow you to develop relationships. And yes, you can make contributions in terms of leadership and CME and advancing science, all the things that we mentioned. But one of the core things really is you, you meet people like yourself. And, and as a result, those relationships just become so impactful to your life and, and the, way you, the way you think about things, the fun times, the bad times, all, all of those things. Uh, so I hope we get to do this again. And for those out in the audience, I hope you're all doing well. And I'll, I'll leave it to you, Dr. Shaw. Thank you so much again for having us. Yeah, no, thank you all so much. Thank you, Dr. Mitchell from ASPO, Dr. Galen from TRIO, and Dr. Daly from ABEA. Uh, we appreciate your time. Really also just your honesty and openness. For our listeners, just think of our societies, as Dr. Garrett said it so nicely, as a unifying spot to find mentorship opportunities and really engagement. Um, and as Dr. Mitchell said, to find a home and in more primal terms, as Dr. Daly said, find your tribe. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. You can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, iHeartRadio. Please remember to rate, like, and subscribe. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. And start working on your application for these societies. Uh, find your home. We love feedback, suggestions, or if you ever want to come on the show. And I think that's a wrap. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.